My name is Anya, and on this week's edition of Women on the Line, I look into parenting with a disability, specifically the experience of women with a disability in Australia who are parents. Women with disabilities are often denied the right to experience their sexuality, to have sexual relationships, and to found and maintain a family. They experience discriminatory attitudes which question their ability to become parents. They have their babies and children removed by child welfare authorities without evidence of abuse, neglect or parental incapacity and they can lose their children in custody disputes simply because they are women with disabilities. Other issues faced by women with a disability who would like to become parents is forced sterilisation which has occurred in Australia and happens to people as young as seven years of age. Another barrier for women with disabilities is the ability to adopt. Featuring on this week's show is Natalie Rose Corrigan, who's a writer at Daily Life and a student at Deakin University. Also, Jack's Jackie Brown, disability advocate and queer rights activist, and also disability advocate and mother of six, Samantha Connor, who lives in rural Western Australia. First up, I spoke with Natalie Rose Corrigan. In mid-December, she wrote an article titled, What Makes Someone Fit to Parent?, in response to a couple in Canada, both living with cerebral palsy, who were caught in a media storm when local social services issued a permit to remove their newborn son from their care. I saw an article about a couple in Canada who had cerebral palsy, both of them, and the article title was Disabled Parents Allowed to Keep Child. And I was really intrigued by the language that was chosen because it was almost as if they'd done them this great favour. So I clicked on the link to the article and I read it. And the couple were otherwise very intelligent, very self-sufficient. The nature of their disability was physical. And what had happened is they had had a challenge to have their child taken away from them, their newborn son. And uh, luckily they were successful But it got me thinking about, you know, this idea because I actually myself have cerebral palsy. That got me thinking about, you know, if this can happen in a developed nation like Canada, can it happen in Australia? Originally, the article was going to be about just um, children being taken away from their parents. Mm. But the more I delved into the issue and the more I investigated... Uh, I realised there were several human rights breaches, in particular um, forced sterilisation, which was very concerning, which I found out through People with Disabilities Australia and Women with Disabilities Australia. Mm. So as the article took on its own life, it, it got more complex. Mm. So, yeah, in mid-December, you did write this article, which was titled What Makes Someone Fit to Parent, um, which was in response, as you say, to a couple in Canada, both living with cerebral palsy, who were caught in a media storm when local social services issued a permit to remove their newborn son from their care. And then later on, the couple had their child returned to them. And as you say, there was an issue around around the kind of kind of patronising tone of the media articles surrounding the, the couple in Canada? Is that what your kind of issue was yeah, as well? Ab- abso- absolutely. The, the title allowed to keep their child, it, it did bother me. 
So kind of moving on from the case in Canada, your article was really delving into yeah the, the local issues around parenting and disability. And you looked at some similar situations occurring here in Australia where people with disabilities uh, are challenged when they are pregnant or have had their first child. Um, in your article, you stipulated someone in Australia named Rebecca, who you've changed the name of for privacy reasons, who has a mild intellectual disability and was still pregnant with her first child when she was reported to Child Protective Services. Could you explain more about this scenario? So in the case of Rebecca, what I found doing the research for this piece is that the type of disability that is most targeted and most discriminated against, although physical disabilities count, it's actually intellectual disabilities that get alarm bells ringing. So what happened in the case of Rebecca is she was in the very early stages of pregnancy. So I think she probably went to a doctor's appointment to have it confirmed. To this day, she doesn't know who notified CPS. And basically what happened from there was prior to the child even being born, the Child Protective Services got involved. They did a series of cognitive tests and uh, assessments of the home and looked at her living situation. And they basically explained to her that when the child would be born, she and her partner, who also has an ID, an intellectual disability, Mm. would have to reside with a non-disabled individual and raise the child in that house for 12 months with someone to oversee them. Hmm. And during that time, uh, from memory, Rebecca said they came about once every two weeks to sort of observe how she interacted with the child, how she cared for the child, and assessing whether they were, quote, you know, fit to parents. After that 12-month period, it was taken to court, and she decided not to contest it, and the child now lives with another relative, and she sees her once every two weeks for four hours. Do you do you know why she didn't contest it? And, and Absolutely. So at the time she contested it, she was given a, a court-appointed lawyer, but the lawyer didn't specifically specialise in that area. Now, while the lawyer advised her, we can fight this, we can contest it, we can look into it, I think there was a feeling for herself that she didn't have enough support. And when I say support, I mean in terms of assistance, in-home assistance, Ideally, Rebecca would have liked to have raised the child, maybe with some parental training, you know, and maybe with some in-home care assistance. Uh, But that wasn't something that was accessible. Now, there are currently programs that do offer training for disabled parents or specifically parents with intellectual disabilities, but they're not necessarily accessible. And the reason they're not necessarily accessible to everyone is sometimes they have uh, restrictions. For example, in order to be eligible to enter that training program, you would need to have custody of the child 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. Now, because the child was currently at that time, you know, not completely in her custody, she wasn't eligible to receive that kind of assistance. And I think she felt too overwhelmed was the impression I got when I spoke to her. So when I I asked her, I said, you know, do you regret giving up custody? And she said, in some regards, I do, and in some regards, I don't. Mm. And um, one thing she said is she wanted to make sure that the child understood that her parents were who her parents were, that Rebecca was her mother, and that 
raising the child to understand disability with a positive attitude. Mm. That was one of her conditions in giving up custody to the relative. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, Rebecca, uh, a person with a mild intellectual disability who was still pregnant with her first child when she was reported to Child Protective Services and has since uh, since she gave birth to the child, um, she gave up custody of the child to a relative. Do you, do you know of any other stories or have you, any got, have you got any statistics or anything around how often you know, women with disabilities lose custody of their children? Statistically speaking, and there's lots of data to back this up in, in Senate inquiries and submissions that uh, Women with Disabilities Australia has provided to the government, that on average, a woman with a disability of any kind is 10 times more likely to have the custody of her child taken away from her than, say, a physically abled or non-disabled parent. Mm. So it's significantly higher. You're currently listening to Women on the Line and we're speaking with Natalie Rose Corrigan, a student at Deakin University and writer at Daily Life, who in mid-December wrote an article titled What Makes Someone Fit to Parent? in response to a couple in Canada, both living with cerebral palsy, who were caught in a media storm when local social services issued a permit to remove their newborn son from their care. This Women on the Line is focusing on parenting and disability. Natalie Rose Corrigan. Uh, often, I guess the big issue, or one that we really covered, was that access to parenting is often, there are often barriers put in place, whether it be through sterilization, which is something the article explored in great detail. Now, we don't know exact figures on sterilization and its prevalence in Australia, but we do know it happens. Mm-hmm. And this is something that was confirmed with Women with Disabilities Australia. I had one story of a girl who was vision impaired, who was otherwise intelligent and self-aware and everything. Uh, She was sterilized at the age of seven. So before she'd even had the opportunity to sexually mature, that very invasive procedure was done. Other barriers are things like access to adoption. So you take away the natural right to have a child and then you take away the alternative as well. So what happened with one particular individual was the same woman was on the adoption list for years with her husband. She owned a home, she had a husband, they wanted to have a child and they found out that they'd been overlooked several times even though they'd been listed as the preferred parents in several adoptions. There's a a certain age barrier on adoption Mm -hmm. where you get to a certain age and you're no longer eligible to adopt. So she's in her early 40s now, I believe, and she can no longer adopt a child. And she obviously can't have a child because she was sterilized. So that's another barrier women face when disabled women face when it comes to having children. And what has the United Nations had to say about forced sterilization of people with a disability? The forced sterilizations are a breach of many UN acts. The uh, United Nations has what's called the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And what the convention endeavours to do is to make sure that there is a code implemented. What they say is that children with disabilities shall have equal equal rights and not be separated from their parents against their will, except when authorities determine that this is in the best interest of the child. And it also says, you know, that we are to ensure the equal rights and advancement of women and girls with disabilities and protect children with disabilities. 
It also recognised that people with disabilities are equal before the law to prohibit discrimination. Now, unfortunately, obviously, when you look at the fact that we are sort of in this grey area where we say, well, we want to recognise them as being equal, but at the same time, we're going to have this thing where we, we decide or the courts decide on a case-by-case basis who will and will not be sterilised. Mm. My view is that this is a, a, a form of abuse, an abuse of the law, and it, it's a very dangerous grey area. Carolyn Fromada, the Executive Director of Women with Disabilities Australia, she mentioned in your article that we need desperate um, widespread change at a federal level. Yeah, absolutely, because the problem is what, what seems to be the case is that there's no uniformity throughout Australia when it comes to deciding who can be sterilised. And we have, it's not properly documented and we don't have enough co- coverage of what exactly is going on. There needs to be some kind of inquiry into this issue. We need to actually encourage educating people with intellectual disabilities at an appropriate level where they'll be able to understand and not put these really invasive options, especially on women, because when you look at sterilisation, I mean, of course it happens to men too, and that's terrible if they're being manipulated into it, but it's far more invasive to sterilise a woman than it is to sterilise a man. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Women on the Line, produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio Station in Melbourne, Wiradjuri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Anya, and this show is about disability and parenting, specifically how women with disabilities, whether they're intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities, are deemed unfit to be good parents. Some of the issues that these women face include forced sterilisation to girls as young as seven years of age. Access to adoption is quite difficult. And keeping custody of your child is also a big problem faced by women with disabilities. Speaking next is Samantha Connor, a woman who has six children and lives in rural Western Australia. She is a wheelchair user and a disability advocate. Hi, thanks for having me on. So I'm a woman with a disability who has six children aged between 18 and 28 I'm married, live on a farm in regional Western Australia. I'm a disability activist and a scout leader and have a number of hats. And so you were saying to me earlier that um, that you were diagnosed with muscular dystrophy and for a large part of your life um, you weren't in need of a wheelchair. Um, people's perception of you have changed um, since you have been using a wheelchair. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was... Um An interesting thing as a person with a degenerative disability that I spent some time on crutches and people would think that that was acceptable and treat me in the same way that they had done before I used crutches because they associated it with injury. Um, When I became a wheelchair user, people spoke to me quite differently. They made assumptions about who I was, where I worked or didn't work and whether I I had a family or not and um, those assumptions were sort of quite at odds with who I was and it was quite startling for me to have people looking at me differently and treating me differently. Mm. And so you're uh, a parent, a proud parent of six children. That's quite a handful. Could you tell us a bit about uh, the kind of negative or positive or both uh, reactions that people uh, close to you or you know, acquaintances or just people on the street have had um, when they find out that you are a parent with a disability? 
the fact that some of my children have disability as well, um, people find it quite hard to reconcile that I might be a carer and might, you know, have family responsibilities for my children because they see me as being a person who's in need of care. So it's quite at odds with the way that I've been treated as a carer in the past. Uh, people really have a problem with, you know, accepting that I, I might have children as well because um, the way that people with disability are quite often betrayed is people who don't have relationships, people who aren't sexual beings and people who are eternal children. But I, I guess I found that quite challenging as a parent to be regarded as not a parent and not a carer when I'd held that identity for a really long time. Before I used a wheelchair, people, when I told them that um, I had six children, would say that... Um, you know, I should get a television or ask me if I was Catholic. Last year I was nominated for an award and the MC recited all of my achievements and people listened politely. And at the end he said, and she had six children and people broke into spontaneous applause. <laughs> it was quite an odd thing for me because um, the reaction that you have from most people is, um, you idiot, you know, why would you have six children? <laughs> so um, it became that thing where I people regarded me as an inspirational disabled person because I just had a lot of kids, and um, that was that was quite shocking to me. I was thinking it it's, it sort of felt as if all of the achievements that I'd um, I'd been nominated for the award for had been disregarded just because I had kids. Amusing to my children who were in the crowd though. Mm. <laughs> how do how do they deal with? Um, I mean, I guess they would have their own issues, as um, some of them have got disabilities as well. Um, but how do they deal with, say, you know, when they were growing up, kids in the playground, you know, talking about their mum who's, you know, in a wheelchair or before you were in a wheelchair, even. My daughters, especially, are very defensive. People tend to look at you if you're a wheelchair user, and you don't necessarily see that as a wheelchair user because people, you know, try not to make eye contact but the people who are walking behind you sort of see all of those stairs so my daughters are fiercely defensive and um, I think you know because they were older children they didn't grow up with having a visibly disabled mother you know so they really have sort of um, with me through this whole progression of um, becoming a wheelchair user. Mm -hmm. And just to finish up, if you could just share any kind of groups that you know of if people who have a disability are listening and are interested in parenting or are parents and they could maybe join? Most of most of the um, disabled parents that I know are people who sort of float around a lot of those groups, like the diagnostic groups. So it's really the, the wheelie mums group is probably the only one for wheelchair users. And But there's many um, autistic parents as well who also have autistic children. And I know the um, Autistic Family Collective is a group that um, supports um, those parents. You're listening to Women on the Line, and that was Sam Connor from Western Australia talking about her experience of being a parent with muscular dystrophy and being a wheelchair user. Up next on the show is Jack's Jackie Brown, also a disability advocate and a queer rights activist who speaks about her issues with the fact that Although adoption has just been passed for same-sex couples in Victoria, she's worried that rights won't stretch far enough for queer women with disabilities to have access to adoption. Recently you wrote an article, it was mid-December, about how Australia has come around on same-sex adoption, but you wonder whether it will ever happen for people with a disability. Uh, Could you talk a little bit why you wrote this particular article? Yeah, as a queer woman with a disability who's in a stable same-sex relationship. I was really overjoyed about the change in legislation and I tried to kind of look into it in terms of 
what does it mean for queer people with disabilities? Do we have equality um, in terms of our relationships? And it turns out that in Victoria, we really don't. There is, you have to be deemed uh, fit and healthy and able to actively parent a child. And if you have a disability where um, you could be seen as unable to do this, um, you aren't able to apply for adoption. So, yeah, people with disabilities really don't have a level of equality. And what does what do you think it even means to be a fit, healthy and active parent? Um, that's one question. And the other question is, what do you think gives the state the right to, to make up those kind of barriers to people becoming parents if they really want to? Yeah, I mean, I think it is an arbitrary kind of definition. And what does it mean? It's up to the people who are assessing you and who are these people and what does that assessment look like? And how can that assessment be made on the basis of, I presume it it takes the form of home visits, it takes the form of medical tests and diagnoses in terms of um, what your impairment is and your presumed capableness to parent a child. But we all know that um, there's a lot of great parents that parent really differently and find ways to parent really creatively. Um, I'm a wheelchair user myself and I know... I'm part of a Facebook group called Really Good Mums. Um, and there's a lot of um, creative, in, inventive ways that mothers in wheelchairs use to actually be able to um, carry their child around on their lap while they're wheeling about and, and do things like that. So I really question the authority of the state to kind of make an assessment on your capacity to parent without you actually having the child and having a chance to kind of think through some of the ways that you would parent as a parent. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really great name for a group like that. Yeah. <laughs> really good mums. Um, and you're, I mean, you're not a parent as yet, and but you would like to have a kid at some point? Yeah, I think that me and my partner have been gradually talking about it. Um, yeah, so it's definitely something that kind of I've been thinking a little bit more and more about it as my friends have kids and I'm more engaged with um, young children in my life. I kind of um, have been having more of those conversations. And so when this change in legislation happened, it's kind of something that I was keen to investigate and also keen to talk about in, in my relationship as well. But yeah, I think that one of my concerns is this presumption that people with disabilities and particularly women with disabilities, it does have a gendered Um, nature to the discrimination that people with disabilities experience. The presumption that we're not going to be good parents and that presumption seems to be there from the outset. Like I know of friends who have disabilities who um, when they found out they were pregnant and you know went for all the tests and that kind of stuff that it was presumed that they were going to be unfit parents and that they were going to need levels of intervention and support and being watched by social services, like from the outset of, of finding out that they were having a child. And so that is really, really scary, I think, for any any parent to think that you're being presumed unfit to parent before you've even had the child. Mm. And in some cases, I've heard um, that people who have an intellectual disability or a physical disability or whatever it may be, on becoming pregnant, they the social services have intervened already and said, when you have the baby, we're going to take it away and pass it on to a relative. Yeah, I think that that, that is a reality for a lot of parents with disabilities. And, and that threat 
of the possibility of that? Is it is it ter- terrifying thing to kind of um, be considering and, and thinking about when you are going through all the the regular kind of stresses of, of being pregnant and of um, having a baby in your life to think that, um, yeah, that, that you could lose that child through no fault of your own, through the presumption of um, your parenting being inadequate before before it's even proven so, just because of the nature of your body or your mind. Yep, absolutely. And the Australian Institute of Family Studies found a few years ago that parents with intellectual disabilities were overrepresented in child protection and legal proceedings. And it read that research suggests that factors contributing to this overrepresentation include discrimination, prejudice, and the lack of support services. So what this kind of says to me, I don't know what it says to you, is that that if there was uh, some support services which weren't an intervention or it wasn't the state watching, seeing how you're going, you know, in a way that wasn't okay with you, you know, perhaps if the if the state was funding for some services or some, you know, workshops in parenting for people with disability and people who don't have a disability, um, mm. what do you kind of have to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way to go. I think that... Every first-time parent needs to learn skills of parenting, of changing nappies, of all those kind of of breastfeeding, of bottle feeding, of all those kind of skills that that every first-time parent um, has to learn. And I think particularly um, if you have an intellectual disability, ways to um, teach those skills to a person in ways that they can understand are really, really important. And also if you have a physical disability, finding tailored ways that really work for you and enable you to be the best parent you can be and to parent as independently as you can do is is really important. But I also think it's a fallacy to kind of assume that parents are going to exist outside of a support network of families and friends that will help them and assist them to navigate what it means to be a parent. You know, everyone has people around them that are going to teach them some of these skills. But I think if the if the government could be proactive in enabling spaces for us to learn them as well, that would be really great. Yeah. And and just to finish up, if you wanted to give a shout out to the to one of the one or more of the groups that you know of who um support people who have a disability who are parents. So there's a great group based in Melbourne called SARU, the self advocacy support network and so they can put you in touch with a whole bunch of different groups for people with disabilities um there's one called reinforce which is particularly for parents with intellectual disabilities to learn self-advocacy skills and parenting skills um, and also to gain support from other parents with intellectual disabilities as well and then on facebook of course there's the really good mums group if you want to connect with other wheelchair users who are also mothers you've been listening to women on the line distributed nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Anya, and today on the show we heard from Samantha Connor, Jax Jackie Brown and Natalie Rose Corrigan talking about disability and parenting. And if you missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcasts can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. You can go to that same webpage to find out more about groups which support women with disabilities who are parents. That's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back again next week for more Women on the Line. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 
855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done.